Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand you remember as a young boy making an impact on you? Um, definitely Nike. One of the genius things they do is um, Nike's not trying to sell you a product, right? At least to me, they weren't as a child, and I think they still do an incredible job of this. Um, Nike's trying to uh, connect emotionally with you. And if you go back to, as I said earlier, a kid who didn't have much um, you know, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and you see a commercial, and and it's these athletes, you know, and the music's singing. Would you like to start a revolution? Right? It's like that's powerful. It was all about emotional connection, and I think that's something I take to this day. Is um, the most important part is can we connect? At the end of the day, and some of my Nike friends may not be happy to hear this: sneakers are sneakers. Nike's gonna. Their job is to inspire. You. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. And before we dive into our conversation, I want to let you know that we have a bonus custom segment coming up at the end of the podcast featuring our sponsor, Deloitte. In this segment, I am joined by Suzanne Kunkel, who's the Chief Marketing Officer of Deloitte. She and I will be talking about Deloitte's new Global Marketing Trends Report for 2023. So be sure to stay tuned until the very end of the podcast to check it out. My guest today on the CMO Podcast is Paul Rivera, the Chief Marketing Officer and Partner at the Spring Hill Company, the entertainment development and production company founded by LeBron James and Maverick Carter. Spring Hill's mission is to empower greatness in every individual from creators to consumers. One recent example of that, Uninterrupted's first ever live event for the shop at Super Bowl 2023. Paul seems to have been destined for his CMO role at Spring Hill. Paul grew up in New York City, played professional basketball in Puerto Rico, and then joined Dime Magazine. He moved from Dime to Nike for about seven years before leaving Nike for Beats by Dre in what he called, at the time, his toughest professional decision. In 2015, Paul teamed up with LeBron James and Maverick Carter to found The Robot Company, a consultancy that is now part of the Spring Hill portfolio of companies. Paul was named CMO of Spring Hill in 2020. This is my conversation with a CMO who is entering his sixth season of co-hosting the shop uninterrupted with Maverick Carter. Here's Paul Rivera. 
Paul, welcome finally to the CMO Podcast. I have for a long time had you at the top of my list of most desired guests. So thank you so much for being with us today. Jim, thank you for having me. Um, I have, uh, we have a couple of friends in common, people that have done your show before. Um, so very big shoes to fill on my end, um, but very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. We're recording this on a Monday, and I've heard you say in a chat with Maverick Carter a couple of years ago that you both absolutely love Mondays. You look yes. forward to Monday morning. So say a bit more about that to start us off. You know, um, I believe that if you love what you're doing, you never work a day in your life. Um, Maverick and I joke that, you know, we've been on vacations, whether it's snowboarding in Aspen or, you know, in the south of France. And after three days, we start getting a little itchy uh, to get back to work. We feel like, you know, we're missing something. We feel like there's a stone unturned and we feel like we could be doing more. Um, so the weekends tend to feel like that, right? Once Sunday afternoon, evening, once that last football game and hopefully my New York Giants have just won a game, <laughs> it's time to get back to work. It was so much fun to prepare for this interview. You have so much, so much great content out there. But I, I discovered something that I didn't know, and that is that you're an investor in Major League Pickleball, along with an amazing list of athletes, entrepreneurs, and on the corporate side, AB InBev, right? They're, they're a major sponsor. So why are you an investor in Major League Pickleball, and where is it all going? Um, you've done your research, Jim, clearly. Um, what I would say is, as with most things uh, I've been fortunate to be involved with, it started from a passion point. Um, we never looked at the Major League Pickleball investment um, as we would a traditional investment, meaning um, any investment opportunities, you view them first, second, third, and almost last uh, for the pure um, you know, economics of it, right? Mm -hmm. What the opportunity is. Um, last summer, we actually started two summers ago in COVID, uh, as many of us were looking for things to do, right? Yeah. Um, um, I was introduced to Pickleball by actually my partner, Maverick Carter, um, and took an immediate liking to it. Uh, that led to last summer, us playing a bunch of games. Every weekend we get together, the games got very competitive. And um, I honestly half-jokingly said it would be great to own a pro Pickleball team and Honestly, Jim, when I said that, I didn't even know there were pro pickleball teams. Um, and, you know, the, the gift and the curse of having uh, very motivated, curious friends is that they looked into it immediately. And I think I said it on a Sunday and on a Tuesday. It was like, well, hey, there's this league called Major League Pickleball. And, and as we looked more into it, we realized uh, there was a real opportunity not only for us to get involved in something we we're passionate about, but also to make a, a difference. Right. I think. Um, you know, the stats show it's been, you know, well documented that pickleball is the fastest growing sport in America mm -hmm. um, and wanted to make sure that it felt representative of our communities as well. Right. Yeah. Um, so we got involved. We put this group together. It was the easiest uh, consortium gathering we've ever had in terms of, you know, um, we had uh, more people saying yes than we could actually, you know, have on the team. So it's been great. It's been something that uh, we take the responsibility seriously of, of what it means we can do with pickleball off the court. Um, and it's been really exciting uh, to say we own a professional team. Uh, to answer your second question of where do I think it's going, uh, I think it has an unlimited runway. How often do you have the opportunity to say you're on the ground floor of a pro sports franchise, right? Mm -hmm. um, if we're right, it can mean everything, 
right? Uh, your kids and my kids could be talking about the New York Hustlers like we were talking about the New York Giants at the beginning of this. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and if we're wrong, maybe. We've had, yeah, maybe. Right. <laughs> and if we're wrong, we've had a lot of fun, um, yeah. you know, being introduced to a new sport. Um, and, and we're excited about that. We're excited about the opportunity. So who's your favorite foursome to play with? Personally, uh, I love playing against Draymond. Uh, I did an, I did an interview with time magazine and, uh, he has one of the greatest memories on the court. He can tell you any play that happened time score, but somehow he's forgotten that I beat him in Cabo. I would say uh, it's Maverick Carter, my partner, um, Draymond, um, Jason Stein. Not sure if you know Jason, who's a partner of mine as well, and Danny Silman, uh, who heads up Relevant Sports. A very spirited yeah. games, all start out very friendly, um, become not so friendly in the middle, but end friendly as well. So it's okay. It's such a damn accessible game. You know, I, I do very few sports things with my wife and my kids and cousins. We all have different interests. We all do pickleball. And we'll organize a day around it and we'll have a pizza afterward. And, you know, it's just it's anyone anyone's good enough within 15 minutes. It's it's you. You're spot on, Jim. I think I can't think of another sport. And I love most sports um, where you can take me to the backyard. Give me a 15, 20, 30 minute tutorial and I can yep. at least hold my own and play. Right. That's not the case in tennis. And I love tennis, right. basketball, football, baseball, golf, anything else. Um, it sort of feels like the great equalizer, right? To your point, where you could go out and play with your wife and play with your kids and play with your friends um, and everyone have a good time and get a good workout in the process as well. So one reason I love doing this show is every CMO approaches their work differently and it is endlessly interesting. So I'd like to go there with you now. You have one of the most interesting CMO jobs in the world. And I'd like you to start talking about what your role is, how you see your work, how you think about the role of CMO at the Spring Hill Company? Yeah, what I would tell you, Jim, is um, my role as CMO at the Spring Hill Company is in a lot of ways traditional and a lot of ways non-traditional, meaning um, the role itself is a traditional CMO role, but the um, process of how we view the role is a little different. I am more of influence within the mm -hmm. organization. Um, it's honestly something that I had to get a little used to. Uh, I've, I've built my career being a brand guy and really wanted to get my hands dirty. I'm building something, right? So meaning, you know, what's the insight? What are we trying to solve for? What's the creative idea? What's the execution of it? How do you see it through? Um, I'm out of 90% of that process now. Um, if you look at us as a Spring Hill company, um, many people may not know we are a consultancy of an agency named Robot. Yep. We have Uninterrupted, that it's an athlete empowerment um, platform. And then we have the studio, which is Spring Hill. So if you look at those three verticals, they're very different. Uh, success looks very different. Um, the day-to-day -day process looks very different. So my role as a CMO is different within the three companies um, on any given day, sometimes even from Zoom to Zoom, right? From meeting to meeting. What I do pride myself in and what I would say my core responsibility is, is making sure um, that I'm a gatekeeper for the brand, making sure that everything that goes out to the world um, feels authentic, not only to us as a brand, but also to our consumers and fans, and making sure that all the dots are connected in, um, across all three organizations, which sometimes isn't easy, as you can imagine, when you have you know, 300 team members um, with different priorities, different focuses. Um, so on any given day, the CMO role feels and is different, but ultimately, I'm the gatekeeper of all things going out into the world. We've all been there. 
You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Now, you've been CMO since its inception, right? The Spring Hill Company, when everything rolled together. Were there any CMOs or companies or people that were sort of inspiring for you as you kind of defined the role because you were the first one in it? Yeah, I can tell you when I say, you know, I know a lot of times people say I've been fortunate and humbled. I genuinely mean I've been fortunate and humbled. If you look at my history, um, I worked at Nike and, and uh, as a young puppy, I found myself in rooms with Phil Knight, like real meetings with Phil Knight and athletes. Right. Um, you look at I go to Beats by Dre next and found myself in, in meetings with Jimmy Iovine, who's a genius um, and, and Dr. Dre. Right. Um, you know, I've been fortunate to work with LeBron uh, very closely. So I learned and listened uh, a heck of a lot more than I, than I spoke. And I still try to do that. Um, so I took a little bit from each stop, um, the good and the bad. Right. And in a lot of ways, it's a, it's a little more challenging when you're the first in a new role. Right. Because the analogy I give my team, even when I'm interviewing, you know, prospective candidates to come join the team is. You know, externally, we may look like we're a big organization, right? LeBron James is our chairman, Maverick Carter is our CEO, um, and we're making big movies like Space Jam, and we have a game show called, you know, The Wall, and we have a TV show, we have all these things. Um, but if you're inside the company, you quickly realize that we're basically a, a 747 airliner rumbling down the runway. And if you looked out the window, we're also paving the runway <laughs> as we're rumbling down that runway. So, some people find that exciting like I do and, and see all the opportunity in it. Um, but there also are its challenges. We are a startup that doesn't necessarily have uh, the benefit of patience or time in the real world because who our chairman is. Is there any such thing as a typical day for you? I probably the answer is no. No, definitely not. Um, you know, we also have the show, The Shop, yeah. um, that, that I am a co-host on with Maverick. So... Um, it's funny because on most days I have traditional CMO responsibilities and, and part of that is the talent team reports into me. Um, every other week I am talent, right, by definition. So uh, I've had to balance out traditional CMO role, CMO responsibilities and duties uh, with that of creating content and being a creator myself. Um, what I will tell you is there's never a dull moment. There's never a job too big or too small for anyone on our team. 
Um, I think when people say, uh, you know, that they're entrepreneurs, we want an entire company of entrepreneurs, right? Um, I tell all of my direct reports, you guys are all CEOs of your, fu- of your function, right? So no traditional day um, or week or hour. That's a good thing. Hey, since, since the role started, which is like three years ago, yeah. how has your remit shifted in those three years? Because your company has been on quite a growth spurt, lots and lots of initiatives. So how would, what's the biggest change in your role over these three years? Yeah, I would tell you that three years ago, it was let's do everything, right? Let's do everything mm-hmm. we can. Um, you know, the market has shifted. We've had, honestly, incredible growth year on end. Um, Maverick has the great quote. He says that uh, there's a reason why trees don't grow all the way to the sky. Uh, growth stops at some point yeah. or slows down at least. So uh, with the market shifting, we have to be a little more disciplined and, and prioritize, do a better job of prioritizing. When you have an organization as complex and diverse as ours, sometimes those priorities can be at war within themselves, within the building. Mm-hmm. Contrary to what many may believe, there are not unlimited dollars uh, you know, in marketing. So um, we got to be smarter. And my job is to figure out um, what's the right number of bets to place. Um, I also don't want the team thinking we have such limited at bats that every swing has to be a home run. Mm-hmm. That's not a way to success. So it shifted in that in that uh, space three years ago. You know, not only ourselves at Spring Hill, but I think the marketplace uh, was willing to take some more bets, some more gambles, some more swings. Um, and with the economic climate we have right now, just need to be a little more disciplined and make sure we're prioritizing. And that's uh, trickling through the entire org. Yeah. I've heard you talk with Maverick about this, uh, another quote, keeping the main thing, the main thing, which I just love, but I'd like you to go there a little bit with this. How do you do that? Cause it's hard. And, and when you say, keep the main thing, the main thing, what do you mean by that? Yeah. That, that quote comes from our chairman. It comes from LeBron, right? Um, I think we've seen, uh, LeBron in his career has had a, a million opportunities, right? And one thing that he's never confused is that basketball is the main thing. So if an opportunity came and it doesn't matter if it's uh, a gazillion dollars, is it going to affect the main thing, which is basketball? Is it going to affect the time and commitment he can put to that main thing? And it's something that, you know, we've kept, um, you know, at the center of everything we do. Um, as you can imagine, with some of the names we have uh, attached to us, there's a ton of opportunity, whether that's projects coming in for the studio, whether that's uh, brands that want to work with our consultancy slash agency, um, whether that's opportunities for us as a brand uninterrupted to collab with other brands. Um, you know, it's discipline. It, come, it becomes even a little more complicated when dollars are involved, right? When you see the shiny object and people are throwing money at you, um, not every dollar is a good dollar, um, as the saying goes. And it's honestly something that, uh, you know, we keep top of mind daily. Uh, there was a famous poker player that, poker player that once said, um, in playing poker, the most important rule to realize is you can, you can skip on 10 hands that you should have played, and it won't really harm you. You'll still be in the game. But if you play one hand you shouldn't play, it can be lights out and game over. We can't get all the business, and that's okay, right? I'd rather... Jim, if you came to me with an opportunity that wasn't in our sweet spot, I'd rather recommend you to someone that could be mm-hmm. amazing there, right? Yeah. And not yep. worry about the business. It'll come back around to us, you know, in due time when 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 it's appropriate. Uh, but keeping the main thing, the main thing has been 
honestly one of our guiding lights and keep making sure we're staying on our path, what we call our areas of brilliance. How do you really operationalize that, Paul? How do you how do you make decisions within the Spring Hill Company? I mean, you have so many things, categories you could go into, brands you could work with, people you could work with, projects you could take on, because your purpose is about empowerment, and that's a big one. And there are a lot, a lot of things you could do on that. Give us some insights in do you follow a criteria? Do you follow a, a checklist? Do you get around a table and knock things around once a week? I mean, how do you how do you operationalize that? Keep the main thing the main thing. Yeah, very loudly in meetings, by the <laughs> way. <laughs> uh, the best kind. Yeah, very loudly. What I would say is we have another mantra, brand leads, business follows, um, which sounds nice, but sometimes in practice isn't the easiest thing. Uh our brand partnerships team, which is led up by Chris White, they do amazing work. Um, sometimes they'll bring an opportunity to us that we may not feel is best for our brand. So literally saying no to dollars, which again, as we mentioned in this economic climate, isn't something you know most entities are uh, inclined to do. So for us, that's, that's really the first filter is what's best for the brand. Mm-hmm. And when we say brand, not only the Spring Hill brand, overarching brand, but also our consumer, right? Is this helping us close that gap between um, what it is we do and want to do, whether that's in the form of content products or experiences and our consumer, right? Um, You know, I always tell Maverick for me at the top of my mind is, oh, at the front of my mind is always what's the 16 year old kid in the Lower East Side need and want? What's the 16 year old kid in Akron want? What's the 16 year old kid in, 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 and Compton one. Um, and I think just honestly, keeping ourselves honest to that, that duality of who our core consumer is, um, who we're trying to speak to, but also at the same time, just making sure that the brand is leading and making sure that, you know, we're making decisions that make us timeless. We want to be Walt Disney. We want to build something that lasts long beyond us. You said a few minutes ago that something unique about your role is you are... <laughs> You're a CMO, but you're also talent, right? You're you're quite a talented entertainer, host, uh, and and I've watched a lot of your stuff, and you're really good at it. So I want you you to talk a little bit about how have you always been good in this space? Is it something that you've worked on? Is it something that comes supernaturally to you? You know, I feel like when you host the shop with Maverick, I just feel like I'm eavesdropping on such an interesting personal conversation among new friends, old friends, and that's the power of it. And you and Maverick somehow bring that out. So you do a great job at that. So talk a little bit about where that comes from. Jim, first of all, thank you. Uh, Whether you realize it or not, that's the greatest compliment. We never want the shop to feel like it's an interview because it's not. It really is a conversation. Um, I will tell you a very quick, funny story before I answer your question. we had Jay-Z on an episode and Jay-Z is fantastic. And um, we're talking and, and he's sitting next to me to my left and he looks over at me and he whispers and he's like, hey, PR, what's up? And he's like, mind you, we're mic'd up. He goes, when do we start? When do we start filming? <laughs> I said, Jay, we've been filming 20 minutes. That's perfect. <laughs> you that's know, it. so that's yeah. how I knew we had kind of nailed it. What I would say is to answer your original question, no, I, it was never... Uh, something I aspired or intended to be in, in terms of talent, um, specific to the shop. Um, the shop was an idea of exactly what you're talking about. I was finding myself in these rooms with incredible people 
you know, some, you know, and some, you don't know. Um, and the conversations we were having, I just remember thinking to myself, I'm like, wow, I'm learning more in these conversations than I did in school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, going back to those 16 year old kids, um, I was like, wow, what if we could create a platform where these kids could get this information, right. And wrap it up in a cool way. So it's not a lecture. So I say all that to say, I kind of backed into it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's grown. It went from one show a month to now two shows a month to Thursday night football. Yeah. Um, you know, Maverick always jokes, the only thing that success, the only thing that success affords you is the opportunity to do it on a bigger platform. Um, so uh, it's been fun. I don't view it as work because honestly, the, what you see on the show is what we do if there were no cameras around. We'd right. go and talk shop, no pun intended. Um, my responsibility uh, above and beyond being a co-host is making sure those conversations feel um, like there's something people can take away from them and apply to their own careers and their own lives. That's one thing I love about your show, Jim, at the end when you kind of summarize, mm -hmm. you know, three learnings that you take away. Yep. So it's something we want to make sure that, yes, it's entertaining content. If it's not entertaining, no one's going to watch it. But we also want to make sure that this takeaways, again, our entire platform um, is all about empowerment. How do you build the chemistry so quickly with the guests? Because I know you know a lot of them, but you, don't, you probably don't know all of them. But the chemistry feels so good so quickly. How do you and Maverick do that? A lot of wine, Jim. A lot of wine. <laughs> and some Grey Goose too, right? Yeah, a little yeah, bit. Some Grey Goose for sure. No, no, you know, honestly, it's, it's and, and you do this uh, at the highest levels. It's just, it's just a prep. We don't want it to feel like an interview. And, and hopefully if we've done our job um, and, and the work prior to cameras rolling, um, we're keeping our guests entertained and, and asking interesting questions and, and, and discussing topics that we know are near and dear to them. Um, I know we've had a successful show before we, before we wrap. I know we've had a successful show when the talent is asking each other questions. Yeah. Right. 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 And Maverick and I are kind of just getting out of the way. Um, you know, my job, um, I, I half joke. I say that Mav's job is play by play and mine's more color. Mm -hmm. Um, my job is just to guide the conversation and make sure, you know, we're having great, rich um, discourse. Um, and it happens quickly. It happens in the pre-work of the rooms we put together, making sure we have rooms that you'd look at and say, oh, wow, I, I never expected those two people to be in the room. And they probably wouldn't be if it wasn't for the shop. And it's making sure, look, we're not into we're not trying to burn anyone. We're not shock jocks. We're not, you know, uh, our credibility is more important to us than any viewings, ratings, clicks, likes, any of that stuff. And we all want the same thing out of it. We want to make sure that we're having really diverse um, discourse and conversation about mm -hmm. things that matter to us, right? Which is why yeah. you'll see we very rarely are talking about who the top five, anything are. Yeah. How do you think you've become a better host over the years? Well, that's a great question, Jim. No one's ever asked me that. Um, uh, try to listen more. Mm -hmm. right? I think sometimes it's easy to get lost as a host that you feel you have to not dominate the conversation, but drive the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, there are times that 15 minutes will go by and the producers in my ear, like, Hey, is this thing working? And I'm like, yeah. no, let, it's, it's going. It doesn't need me. I'm a vessel for the conversation. Um, no one's tuning in to see me um, or listen to me speak. Um, and I take my responsibility seriously of, making sure that we're not only having an incredible conversation, but also that uh, 
our guests are being seen as their great authentic selves, right? And I think um, I've been so fortunate to have guests that, you know, a Jay-Z doesn't show up as Jay-Z the rapper. He shows up as Jay-Z Sean Carter, who has all the infinite wisdom of being a worldly traveled guy. Yeah. Um, you know, I joke that, you know, when we had, you know, Tom Brady on, I'm like, I don't think anyone's ever heard him curse before, like, you know, an interview. Right. And, and, uh, although my mom said it may have been too much cursing, but it's a whole separate conversation. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't, I don't, um, I don't take myself seriously. I realize that, uh, my role as a host is, is again, to be a vessel and, and, and get the best out of the conversation possible. And that just comes with time. Yeah, I listen to some of my earlier podcasts and I cringe. Me too. Uh, Me too. So comes with time. <laughs> no, not yours, but I listen to mine. I mean, I'm I'm four years into this show, and I would answer that question about the way you did. I I listen more. I'm more comfortable with silence, and I have my ears always up for follow up. I mean, I do my prep. I have some things I want to talk about, but I kind of want to go where the guest wants to go. It's a and, great point. And so I, I follow and. Uh, and that just comes with some confidence and time and experience. Yeah, that's a great point. To, to that note, um, we don't have questions going into the shop. We have uh, topics, right? Yeah. And, um, and to your point, even if we did, I don't know what I'm going to get from guests. My biggest fear, uh, if anything, uh, is that I miss something. If you're too focused on the 12 questions you're going to ask, you miss some of that stuff. And you miss the good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Of all of the episodes you've done, the people you've met, is there one that kind of pushes through as most meaningful for you that had a large personal impact on you to make, that made you think about some things you haven't thought about for a while? Yeah. Um, it may surprise you. I'd say Drew Barrymore. Hmm. Um, you know, she was an ET, right? Like, so we've, we've, uh, seen her our entire life and not really thought about, she's a great actress and, and been successful. And, and I think there's a tendency to think everyone has everything figured out and, uh, hearing her speak so openly, candidly, um, and honestly, just, just raw, um, and hearing that, you know, she didn't have it figured out any step of the way and that she's still dealing with things and, 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 uh, She's the only one that's cried on the show. And, you know, people say I cried. I just think it was a little sweaty in there. And that's probably what it was. My eyes were a little yeah, yeah. Uh, dusty or whatnot. Um, but it was that. It, it was, it was, I think at times we put talent on a pedestal and we think their life must be so great because they make all this money and they have all this fame. And what you realize is they're human beings just like the rest of us. Um, and uh, it was a great moment to, to know that someone of her caliber trusted us with her truth, um, trusted us with her, with her, with her honesty. Um, and that was, that was really cool to see. It was a really cool moment. And, um, I have the utmost respect for her. Um, obviously we had president Obama on the show. And I mean, anytime you can have any president yeah. on any show, regardless of political affiliations is, is, uh, is, is inspiring. Um, we've had great people. We've had, you know, Bad Bunny on the show who may be the biggest artist in the world right now. And, and a, a funny story is we ended up somehow in the green room together getting mic'd up together. And I've been doing it long enough to know when someone's nervous. Mm -hmm. I looked at him and he's nervous and I speak Spanish. Uh, Bad Bunny, I'm Puerto Rican. Obviously, Bad Bunny's Puerto Rican. And I looked at him and I was like, Está bien, which is like, are you okay? 
And he looked at me and he was like, in Spanish, he's like, oh, you speak Spanish? Oh my God, like, man, I'm so nervous. And I'm like, you're bad bunny. Like, what are you nervous about? And I think it was a level of, he was in a room with LeBron James and Jay-Z and he wasn't so confident in his English. And I told him, I said, listen, that's like, you're bad bunny. Like, we're so excited to have you. If you get stuck, just speak in Spanish and I'll translate it for you. And there's a couple of moments in there where he speaks it. And Jay-Z said afterwards, like, it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen doing that thing. So it's those types of moments. It's those types of moments where it just feels bigger than just a show. Those human connections as with anything else. Uh, During the Super Bowl weekend, you took the show in front of a live audience for the first time, I think. And it was a it's a it was a bunch of kids, right? A bunch of young people in there. Good for you. So tell us a bit about what the vibe was in the room with an audience there. You know, we, we did our first uh, pop-up shop experience uh, in Phoenix, and it was great. The NFLPA were incredible partners, and they, they made sure they helped us bring uh, kids from the community. Mm-hmm. And uh, honestly, the, to my earlier point of just community and empowerment, the, the coolest part of it was seeing little kids in the community get an experience they normally wouldn't get. Yeah. And we treated them like they were the stars, yeah. right? So they came on set and recognized the barbers that are celebrity barbers in their own right. And they were so excited and our barbers are so great, you know, that they were like, no, you're the, I'm, I'm excited to be cutting your hair. Are you crazy? Like, forget those guys. Like, so um, just seeing that, and, and as I always talk about, just, just closing that gap between, um, you know, when you talk marketing and advertising and business, yes, that's important. And those are our day jobs. Uh, those moments are what separate Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Monday from the Wednesday to the Friday. Yeah. Um, it's something we want to do more of. Um, but we also, you know, to my earlier point, want to be disciplined with and make sure uh, it's with focus and intention. And uh, that was our first foray into uh, live experience for the shop, but definitely not our last. Yeah. I mean, I read a, a recap of it. It was so well done, so creative. I mean, it just, uh, I think you need to do more of it. Yeah, I would love it. I would love to. We'd love to have you on, man. We got to... Uh, We'll talk anytime, we anytime, anytime. <laughs> hey, I want to move to, you know, you, you work with a lot of big companies, JP Morgan Chase, Nike, of course, all the large media companies. What are your, some of your thoughts on what CMOs at large should be thinking about these days, prioritizing as they think about guiding their brands, their teams forward? Yeah, I think, um, the days of just showing up when you have something to sell are over. Um, you know, I can tell you when I was at Nike, that's kind of how we'd look at it just because that was the, the landscape of things. It was, hey, there's a new shoe we need to market and sell. So that means there's a new campaign. If there's a new campaign, that means, there's, you know, um, I think this consumer is so wildly intelligent, way smarter than we were. Um, definitely I was um, at their ages. Um, and we need to have two-way conversations, right? The days of just like, hey, buy this because we're cool, because we yeah. say we're cool and we're spending all this money. And um, those days are over. So it's figuring out how we can make true connections with our meaningful connections, right? On their terms. Um, and that's some of the pre-work I was talking about earlier. I want to make, we need to make sure um, that uh, we are talking to our consumers not in our language, in their language, that's authentic to them, about things they care about and about things that are helping make their lives better. Um, You know, uh, we've been talking about it. It's a hot topic of of conversation, just economic climate and the uncertainty. 
Um, people having to be more mindful of the dollars they spend, right? People having to be more mindful of the, the time they spend on things. Um, and everyone's fishing out of the same pond, meaning kids have to decide, do they want to watch something on our social media channels or something on Nike social media channels or something on HBO social media channels? Mm -hmm. um, do they want to buy a hoodie from us or do they want to buy a pair of sneakers from X brand? Um, so it's, it's great because it's forcing all of us to be better, more diligent and more intentional in our communications. I think in the past, um, there's been an abundance of budget um, and just volume, right? There's been a ton of noise. Um, I'm not in the camp of people that believes more is necessarily better. And, and uh, honestly, again, keeping the main thing the main thing, right? It all comes back to that. We talk a lot about purpose on this podcast. You have a big one and a great one and an authentic one in empowerment. What have you learned at Spring Hill about bringing that to life day in and day out with all the people that you touch inside and outside the company. That's, that's the hard work, right? Lots of companies can talk purpose, but living it day in and day out. So far in this interview, you've talked about being guided by the brand, doing things that are authentic, uh, thinking about the people, the young people that you bring together that you uplift. So what have you learned about operationalizing empowerment as a way you do business? When people first hear the word empowerment or they hear it coming from us, they believe it's in the form of the content we make. And that's partly true. But empowerment is day-to-day -day decisions you make, right? We're 51% women, right, in our organization. Um, I believe we're 54% um, diverse, right? Uh, men and women of color. Uh, if you walk through our company, you'd see old people, long hair, purple hair, no hair, gray hair, as you see on me, um, you know, you'd see it all. And I think, you know, empowerment, the true definition of empowerment is that those day-to-day -day decisions, it's not just the content. Empowerment can come in the form of us giving a director his first crack at being a director, right? Like Cal Maddock, who had done commercials. We were fortunate to have him as, uh, to give him his first shot as being a director of House Party, right? Um, uh, empowerment is uh, not only the work we do, but how we do it and who we do it with, right? Um, and those things sometimes can be in contrast of each other. Sometimes it's just easier to do it as it's always been done. Um, so for us, it, yes, it is the content and the products and the experiences, but it's also who we decide to hire. It's also who we partner with. It's also who we give opportunities with. That's a responsibility we take seriously. I can tell you, Again, going back to that 16-year-old kid, when I was 16 in the Lower East Side, I didn't know what a CMO was. So if I didn't know what a CMO was, how can I be a CMO? Um, I knew I loved Nike commercials. I didn't know that was a job that someone actually made mm -hmm. commercials. I knew I loved sneakers. I didn't know there was people that designed sneakers, right? So how can I go on that path if I don't know it really even exists, right? Yeah. So again, when we say empowerment, it's something we take seriously, but end-to-end, I want to talk about your career path for a moment. It looks pretty ideal in preparation for this role. <laughs> you know, you're, you're an athlete. You worked at Dime Magazine, Nike, Beats by Dre, and then you joined what became the Spring Hill Company. And I've heard you say that the toughest professional decision in your life was leaving Nike to join Beats by Dre. And I'd like you to talk about, do you still feel that's the toughest decision you've had to make in your professional life or has that changed over time? Every decision I've made has been the toughest decision, but that lets you know you're doing something right. Yeah. I, I once asked LeBron uh, fairly recently, a couple of years ago, if he still got nervous before NBA finals games. 
And his answer shocked me. He said, I get nervous before every regular season game. And I said, still? And he said, yeah. And my guess is the day that starts happening, it's probably when I should stop playing. By no stretch of the imagination am I suggesting my career is paralleled anything in the stratosphere of LeBron's. But I think the sentiment's the same. When I got to Nike, Nike was a dream job for me. I was a kid that, you know, uh, used to pin up all the sneaker uh, ads in my room and, and uh, you know, wanted to be Michael Jordan. And, and first pair of sneakers I really ever wanted was, you know, the Nike Air Revolutions. And they had the Beatles in the commercial and, yeah. and, and Jordan playing and the band shoe, all those things, right? So if you think about that as a kid in, in New York City growing up playing basketball, like Nike to me was utopian. Um, so when I was fortunate enough to get the job there to think that seven years later, I'd be, you know, I didn't get pushed out of there. I, I proactively left there and it was a very difficult decision because I was like, who walks away from their dream job? Um, what I realized, especially at the time, right at the time it was beats by Dre was like a little headphone company. My mom was like, who wears doctor who, who wears headphones? Like what? (laughs) Like you crazy? Like, um, but what I realized then was. Um, I, I had very big ambitions, even if I didn't know what those, some of those ambitions were. Right. And what I mean was, is, um, when I was at Nike, I, for the most part, the large part of my seven year career, I was in the basketball group. Uh, you actually had Phil Cook on, who's the CMO of WNBA. He he was one of my early bosses at Nike. Great guy, super intelligent guy, awesome guy. Um, and what I realized is I was I was uh, in the basketball group for the majority of my time at Nike. And even at an early age, I didn't want to be pigeonholed as the basketball guy. I wanted to be respected as a marketer and a brand guy. Well, one thing I, I definitely want to touch on, it's it's it's, um, you know, the culture of Nike. And we all look, we all respect Nike, one of the greatest brands in the world. Uh, there was this movement at Nike where um they had such great young talent that I think they probably don't get enough credit for that ended up leaving, not on bad terms. It was just people want to do other things. And you started to see that at other brands. So Omar Johnson was at Nike, Nike basketball specifically. He goes and launches beats, right? In terms of, from a CMO standpoint, Todd Pendleton was at Nike. He goes to Samsung, becomes the CMO of Samsung. Maverick Carter was at Nike. He goes on to do the things he does. I was at Nike. So you started seeing this collective of like these Nike disciples going out into the world and and really taking the Nike playbook respectfully. There's somewhat of a fraternity of it. Um, I learned so much there. But I, again, I think it was a pivotal, probably the most important uh, stop in my career. When I left Nike, I was a global director of the LeBron James brand. So if you think about 2012, LeBron had just won his first championship. He had just won MVP. He had just won finals MVP. And he was going to London for the Olympics to win a gold medal. It's one of the most storied years ever. So as a marketer, that's your dream. You don't leave then. Um, but I knew that going to beach would round me out and give me just the culture side of it. And just, you know, non-sport thing. And Mav and I always joke that um, we graduated from the University of Nike. Um, and if Nike was my university, then Beats was my grad school. Um was fortunate enough to work under Omar Johnson, uh, who I think is a genius, creative he's genius. Yeah. yeah, he's awesome. And, and Jimmy Iovine and, and Dre and those guys taught me about authenticity. They didn't care what it meant to the bottom line. If it wasn't authentic, we weren't going to do it. And you could show them, no, Jimmy, Dre, listen, like 
this is going to make, this is going to hit our P&L like this. This is going to be amazing. It just makes all the business sense in the world. If it wasn't authentic to the DNA of the brand, we were not going to do it. Um, and then, you know, leaving there to start what then became Robot, which LeBron, myself, and Maverick co-founded, which is our agency. That was scary. It was like, who leaves Beats to go start an agency? Who needs another agency, right? Um, and I just had a belief that I had learned so much at Nike, learned so much at Beats, um, and had these relationships, um, and had the entrepreneurial bug, and really believed in my partners. And we started Robot, and uh, you know that was eight years ago, nine years ago. Um, and then we had this idea, to Maverick's point of all success brings you is the opportunity to be successful on a bigger platform, of starting the Spring Hill Company and combining all three companies. So each step of the way has been scary, right? If you if you play it in sequence, it looks like I was a genius. Like, oh, he went and got sports <laughs> experience, mm -hmm. and then he went and got coach, and then he went and got an entrepreneur. If you play it backwards, it's scary as hell. Yeah. But there were no guarantees at any step of the way, right? Um, I had a uh, super audacious belief in myself, but at the same time, I had uh, a strong belief in the work I had done up to that point. Meaning, if it didn't work out, I knew I could always go back to one of those places because I did great work. I was very good to people. Uh, um, always did what I said I was going to do, left the right way when it was time to leave somewhere. And what I learned is that we're ultimately all of us, you included, Jim, we're all in the relationship business. Mm -hmm. The biggest benefit you have is that when your name comes up, when someone says, do you know Jim? That I can say, oh, he's a stand-up guy, a man of his word and bust his ass. And, you know, yeah, you'd be lucky to have him. It's time to switch to the creator brief to close to out me. this wonderful discussion. And you, you probably know this, this question is coming. What's the first brand you remember as a young boy making an impact on you? Um, definitely Nike. Yeah, uh, you, know, so. you, notice a, you notice a theme here. Um, look, Nike, um, one of the genius things they do is um, Nike's not trying to sell you a product, right? At least to me, they weren't as a child. And I think they still do an incredible job of this. Um, Nike's trying to uh, connect emotionally with you. Um, and if you go back to, as I said earlier, a kid who didn't have much, um, you know, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and you see a commercial and, and it's these athletes, you know, and the music's singing, would you like to start a revolution, right? It's like, that's powerful, right? Um, and there was something gritty about them. It wasn't so glossy. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a brand that spoke to me. Never in that commercial did they say, hey, the Nike Air Revolution, it costs $110 and it weighs 19 ounces, right? It was all about emotional connection. And I think that's something I take to this day is um, the product ex itself is extremely important. Anything we are selling, making, trying to communicate to a consumer, um, the most important part is can we connect with the base we're trying to connect with, right? And Nike to me in my lifetime has been the greatest to do that. At the end of the day, and some of my Nike friends may not be happy to hear this, sneakers are sneakers, right? It's leather and rubber and material. Um, I don't know last time I checked if one sneaker makes you jump higher than the other, or maybe run faster. Nike's gonna, their job is to inspire you. Their job is to tell you, hey, if you have a body, you're an athlete. And that connected with me, um, not only as a little kid, um, but till this day in my, in my role as CMO is something that uh, drives me to try to achieve in all of our communications with our fans and consumers.
What's the current brand these days making the biggest impact on you? Would you still say Nike or something else? Oh, there's so many. Um, Nike's been a constant, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, for me, when I say, you know, when you say impact, I, I think uh, for me, it's about taste and it's about uh, brands that you see and you're like, oh, they're so consistent, right? Mm-hmm. They're so consistent in all of their communications. Uh, you know, uh, I travel like Ramoa to me. It's something just always premium, always consistent, all in yeah. their communications. Um, I think uh, there's a brand called Ame. Not sure if you're familiar with them. Clothing brand. Um, again, very quintessential New York, but global New York, mm-hmm. if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Look, I think for me, what I care, what I personally care about as a consumer is, uh, and it's funny in my role as CMO, I don't want to feel like I'm marketed to. Right. Which is challenging when you are a marketer. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to feel like a brand is speaking to me. I want to feel like a brand is is helping in some way, maybe even a minute way, helping make my life better. Right. Helping make my life more enjoyable. Um, Apple, obviously, they're incredible in everything they do. Um, yeah. So um, I'm not one that necessarily has a ton of it's going to sound crazy coming from me, maybe brand loyalty. Um, I think uh, I expect everyone to earn my loyalty, these mm-hmm. brands, right, consistently with their communications and their offering. Your job is all about culture, sports, entertainment, purpose. How do you keep yourself personally curious, learning, discovering? That's a great question. Um, I, I think the, the simplest answer is probably travel. I'm influenced by my travels. And when I say travel, that can mean anything. That can mean, yeah, going on vacation. Um, I'm pretty much living a bi-coastal life right now. I'm talking to you right now from New York. On Wednesday, I go to LA. I'm in LA probably 10 days every month. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it can mean being on a subway and or, or walking by a pizzeria when school gets out in New York, yeah, which is a whole yeah, different yeah. experience. Um, and it's that. It's you know I'm fortunate enough to... Uh, I live in a global city of New York. So um, I am always mindful of knowing that you're not going to be inspired by sitting in an office or a cubicle or in front of a laptop. You have to get out and live, right? You have to get out and live and experience things. And, you know, I have friends that are artists and I'll ask them, hey, when's the album coming? And he's like, I, I just need more life. I need to experience things. So for me, I'm inspired by life. I'm inspired by my, by my friends. I'm inspired by my colleagues and my peers. Um, but inspiration can come from anywhere, as they say, whether that's in my, you know, travels around the world or whether that's just in my commute to the office. Um, I, I not only enjoy it, but I need it. It's my lifeblood to, to be successful in my role. Who's been the most inspiring person in your life? Oh, I should have known that one was coming, Jim. Um, you know, I'll give you the traditional answer of my parents, right. Um, and in very different ways. Um, my father went to prison when I was 12 years old and never made excuses for anything. It was never the guy that was like, <laughs> you know, I'm innocent or any of that stuff. It was like, hey, you play, you pay. And at the end of the day, there's no rescue boat coming for you. So you got to figure this thing out. So that's a lesson you learn at 12 years old of like, OK, I got to like tighten my belt and figure this thing called life out. So um, that in a, in a very different way um, helped me. My mom just being consistent. And again, no excuses. Um, you got to get it done. You got to figure out a way. If that means three jobs, if that means, you know, uh, making us breakfast and going off to work and then coming home to help us with homework and then going to your night job. Um, you know, so my parents, first and foremost, 
Um, I would say it's a collection of people, honestly. Uh, I'm fortunate enough, again, to have uh, two partners in LeBron and Mav and and LeBron in the traditional way, right? It's like, that's a guy who, if you ask him what he's doing tomorrow, he won't say he's going to practice or say he's going to work. I got work in the morning. The commitment to your craft. Uh, when he broke the scoring record, we had an incredible dinner um, and party and there was too much Lobos tequila flying around. And the next morning I texted him and was like, man, that was great. And our group chat, that was great, what a night. And he was like, yeah, I'm already back in the gym. And I'm like, I'm not even out of bed. Right. Like, yeah, so, yeah. so, so when you're surrounded by that greatness every day, it's like, oh, I got to raise my level of player. You know, Maverick Carter, who has a million things going on on any given day. But if you call him and you're like, I need you in this meeting to either close this deal or to help them get to see the vision, he's there. Right. So when you're surrounded by people who are willing to work, no ask is too big, no ask is too small. That's inspiring to me. Um, I tell young people all the time. You know, it's not my saying, but it's one I subscribe to. You know, show me the people, show me the five people you spend the most time with, and mm-hmm. I'll show you what you're going to be. So it's something I take seriously. I'm still learning, Jim. I, yeah. I literally, from anywhere and anyone, right, good and bad. Uh, but I've been fortunate and blessed to have people around me um, that are still learning themselves, but are, but are curious, um, you know, authentic people that, uh, are still trying to figure it out and aren't afraid to uh, put in the work and the time. Um, and that's inspiring, but also, like I said, high tides rise all boats and, and forces you to up your game for sure. My dad said that to me years ago. When I was too young to understand it really, but he said, you're really defined by who you hang out with. Mm-hmm. For better point, or worse. Yep, that's right. Yeah. And at, the time, at that point in my life, I wasn't hanging around with the best group of kids. And he just said, it makes all the difference who you're, who you're with. Yeah. Jim, it's funny how that happens, right? We're both getting to the age or are at the age. And I tell you, it honestly happens weekly where I'll think of something my dad said or my mom said or my grandmother. And I'm like, oh, shit, I get it. I get it now. Right. Like I didn't get it then. Um, And I have a 17 year old son who we don't have enough time in this show or the next to go down (laughs) that path. Um, But, you know, you realize that you realize that um, not to get too philosophical, it really comes down to the type of human you want to be. It really comes down to the people you want to spend time with. Um, and I think that in large part helps you be great at your job, right? There aren't two, to do the things we're doing at our level, you know, you, Jim, people, our peers, people we spend time with, there isn't much separation. You know, people talk about work-life balance. There isn't much separation between the work and, and the life piece. Um, so you have to be in such synergy with the type of person, type of boss, mm-hmm. type of manager, type of leader you want to be. Um, those two things can't be in conflict. Now, that's not to say that it's easy, right? There are challenges that come every day, um, but that's the goal, right? And I think I've been, honestly, you know, I know I've said it a lot, but I do genuinely mean it. I've been blessed to have incredible uh, partners and, and, and team and peers that I learn from every day. And that honestly keep me honest, right? It's like, hey, P, like, you're tripping on that one, or you know? Yeah, yeah. And as you get a little maturity and a little experience, you realize um, a lot more listening than talking. And I try to get information from people on my team that are younger than me, right? Even if I think I know the answer, it's like, yep. hey, what do you think on this thing? And it just makes the work better ultimately as well. Paul, this has been so good. 
You've been so generous. I was so looking forward to this, and it 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 exceeded my high expectations, <laughs> and and it felt like we were having a chat over a glass of wine or a cup of coffee, which is uh, which to me defines a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Paul. If there's anything I can do for you, don't hesitate to call. No, Jim, this has honestly been uh, a real honor. Um, I've had when I let a couple of friends know I was doing this, um, one of which was Jet Berger. Yeah. He was like, you got to do it. It's amazing. Jim's incredible. I see why all the high praise. Likewise, anything I can help with, uh, a relationship, a contact, a connection, please feel free to reach out. And um, I got to get you on the pickleball court. That's We got to make that happen in 2023, for sure. Anytime. Anytime. <laughs> it's a date. Jim, Jim, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Before I share the takeaways from today's show, I want to remind you that we have a bonus segment with Suzanne Kunkel about Deloitte's 2023 Global Marketing Trends Report coming up. You won't want to miss it. And now three takeaways for your business brand in life. The first one, and it's a bit philosophical, it's the potential of the field we are in and what we do in branding and marketing. Paul talked about the impact Nike had on his life on how he leads, and on the life of so many other people, people who worked in the company and people who were influenced by the company. This is the potential of great brand building and great marketing. Second takeaway, keep the main thing the main thing. It's a LeBron James quote and philosophy. This company and this leader, Paul, really live that. They think brand first in everything they do. They think long-term, and they think about focus, 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 Third takeaway, and I love this one, I believe in it, and we hear it a lot in this show, relationships are everything. We are all in the relationship business. The most important thing in your career are the relationships that you build over time and the trust that you build. Paul talked an awful lot about that, and he talked about the importance of surrounding yourself with people who lift you up, who challenge you, and that you can trust. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the other side for my conversation with Suzanne. Suzanne, welcome back to the CMO Podcast. You and I recorded a wonderful full podcast episode last November. I love that we talk about your life, your career, your personal story. This one's going to be a bit different. We're going to zero in on the 2023 Deloitte Global Marketing Trends Report. And listener alert, you can download a copy of this report by clicking the link in our show notes. Well, Suzanne, let's start at a high level. You discovered in this research that the number one concern of CMOs is no surprise to any of us, the current economic pressures and turbulence. So I'd like to ask you, what did you learn about how this is affecting their behavior? Sure. And Jim, always good to spend time with you. Um, but certainly the um, the fact that external concerns around economics is top of mind is certainly um, not, the, um, not the aha, if you will. Um, but it definitely was about how Given that environment, CMOs are really thinking through how to accelerate the move to new digital technologies and platforms, how to really have kind of an investment mindset because they know this thing will swing hard the other way. Um, And so thinking how they can continue to enable growth through having more impact, but probably at a flat or decreased budget. And so again, the way to do that would be through, um, you know, digital activation, additional customer personalization, enablement of new markets, and doing that really closely aligned with the conversations that are going on in the broader business and the C-suite. You underscore in the report, you just kind of recap that, that it's, we really need to be choiceful in this business climate. What's your experience in helping people, helping CMOs be more choiceful? 
Yeah. So, um, it's, it's a great question. I think that, um, and, and that is why we did, you know, why we do every year the market trends is, um, you know, really to make sure that CMOs know, you know, number one, they're not alone. Um, number two, it's a great way to kind of take some time to see the forest through the trees and to check not only what you're doing, but also to fuel it. Um, in a way that can be helpful to having a broader conversation within the C-suite. And I would say that the other thing is, you know, really the CMO that understands and can speak in the language of the business. So, um, you know, really understanding what the broader set of pivots and choices that the business is making and then how to express what the CMO is doing within that choice set. The other thing we're trying to do with this trend report is really give people actionable insights. Well, one of your actual insights in the report is the opportunity for share growth and building competitive advantage in an economic downturn. I strongly believe that your report certainly affirmed that. So how do you find some of the best CMOs are kind of seizing this opportunity during the downturn when things are sort of wide open and people are questioning many things? How are they seizing the opportunity to, to get more competitive advantage, build more share? I do think in tough economic times, it's a it's a good environment to sort of really be clear about what's going to add value to the business and what what are things that could be done, um, you know, digitally in ways that you can scale and actually have more activity at a lower cost point per sets of activity. And through that lens, it's a really great way for CMOs to have conversations with the business. So there's really good alignment around that. I think this is a moment in time where marketing has a lot of street cred, if you will, um, with businesses. So I think p- most good CMOs and most strong brands know that now's not the time to go dark, but it is about knowing when and how and where that will make the most difference. And then, you know, doing that in a very facilitated way so that you can then tell the internal story and have the broader conversations. Because most CMOs, and you know this, Jim, well, both through your own experience and all the CMOs that you talk through, it's as much about making sure people understand the why in the broader environment than it is about where you actually net out on the what. What's your counsel to CMOs on what not to cut back on in these challenging times? You said it's not a time to go dark, to go silent. People want to hear from brands when they're going through difficult times and ways brands can help them. Is there one or two things that you would absolutely say do not cut back on? Well, it's always hard to say that because, you know, I I do think kind of looking through the strategies and where brands are is really important. Mm -hmm. However, I would say that, um, you know, certainly the report said things like, you know, number one, it's not the time to stop investments in both brand and in digital platforms that enable more activity in the growth marketing space. The second thing the report said was absolutely do not cut back on sustainability, but it's sustainability through the lens of what is good for the business. Um, and so a lot of that um, will will end up being, we believe, and what the report would say in the next year is around kind of internal sustainability efforts um, and really partnering with the business to figure out where the return is. Um, you know, and then I would say last, um, but certainly not least, is this notion that creativity will get us through these days, right? 
creative problem solving is, you know, kind of what all the brands need right now. And a lot of that comes through having the right people at the table, having a lot of multifunction, multidiscipline, multi-business type collaboration that the CMO should absolutely be orchestrating. Suzanne, thank you. This was a fun, fast conversation about global marketing trends. Always a pleasure. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.